several times in the Old Testament, God displayed himself in the form of flames, and the references are given. All right, so now we've got this miraculous thing is taking place. Now, I've seen, and maybe you have uh, movies or artist rendition of what they think was taking place here, and uh, best we can do is read what it says, and it's like, okay, it's, it's a miraculous thing taking place. The Holy Spirit is basically descending now upon those that were doing exactly what Jesus said. I want you to go, and I want you to wait, and the Holy Spirit is going to come. Did that happen? Okay, we can all agree that that took place. All right, let's move on. Verse 4. Right, here's the operative thing. And they were all what? Filled. Filled. This, is, this word is not meant to be trifled with. When it says filled, it means this isn't like the glass is two-thirds full or three-quarters full or nine-tenths full. When it says they were literally filled with the Holy Spirit, that's very much on purpose. Here's where 2,000 years later we ask this question, and don't answer it, please. Think about it. I want you to think about this one. And here's the question. Are you, and please don't answer because you'll probably be, you'll be half wrong and half right no matter what your answer is. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, for some of you, after you think through it, it's like, hmm, I believe I am. Others will say I'm not sure. Others will say, well, probably not. So it if you look at several other passages, how about uh, Ephesians says, and do not be drunk with wine where is in an excess, but be what? Be filled with the Spirit. Now the implication there is, is a Christian immediately filled with the Spirit? And Ephesians basically tells us that if you're not following God, if you're not walking with God, there is a difference of being filled with the Spirit that happened in the first century and what takes place today. Now, let me caveat for a second. If you're a Christian and you placed your faith and trust in Christ, we've already agreed that who comes to dwell within you? Does the Holy Spirit ever leave you as a believer in Christ? No, it's there. He's there, okay? He's always in there. May not be happy with what we're doing sometimes. He may be very happy with what we're doing sometimes, but the Holy Spirit is there. All right, I want to take us back to the first century now. Reading the text, understanding what it's saying, and let's see where it goes. All right, so they're in this room. The Holy Spirit comes down upon them, and all of a sudden, the word that we started with, the miracle, the sign gift kicks in. And they were all, all filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? This every single person that he, he wasn't saying, "Well, I'm going to do you and you and you and you and nah, not you and not you." Every single person that was gathered, they were literally filled with the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that they were filled? Well, God says, "Listen, there is something that took place that actually they physically did." and began to speak with other what? Tongues. Now, of course, that word has been abused uh, over and over and over again. We're going to look at that in detail. But they all began to speak with other tongues as the whom? Spirit. As the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost gave them 
utterance. All right, now the big issue here and where we're going to come into conflict uh, with certain groups and beliefs is what actually was this tongue or tongues that was taking place. And this passage, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about what's taking place in this passage because he's going, the God, Lord's going to define it very, very specifically. Uh, all right, so the one thing we can agree on, I trust at this point, every single person that was in that room was filled with the Holy Spirit, and what happens? They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, why did this happen? What's taking place? Contextually, verse 5, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why were there a bunch of Jewish people in Jerusalem at this time? Because it was the day of Pentecost. There are three Jewish feasts where every male was required to go to Jerusalem. Those three feasts were? Passover, when I forgot at the beginning, how can you forget that? Passover, Pentecost, and what's the third one? Who knows it? Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Every Jewish male was to appear in Jerusalem at those three times. Now, were the Jewish people scattered all over the world at this point? They were. How do we know that? Well, that goes back to our previous lessons. It had nothing to do with this, but now it has everything to do with it. In 722 B.C., for those of you that have been following along, in 722 B.C., what happened to the Jewish people? Who took them away from Israel? Assyrians. The Assyrians. And they took them up to Assyria. They, 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 many of them, some of them, many of them would come back, but they wouldn't come back immediately. What was the next group that came in in 586 B.C., actually 605, 597, and 586 B.C., who came in and took the rest of the Jewish people except the super sick, lame, and injured to, where'd they take that group? To Babylon. Was Assyria in power when Babylon took that group to Babylon? No. Who conquered Assyria? Babylon. Very good. All right? So now we have the majority of the Jewish people that weren't killed or scattered are now in Babylon. In 515, a little bit before that, a guy named Cyrus says, listen, God spoke to me. The Jewish people need to go back and do what? Build the second temple, rebuild Jerusalem, and get it going. All right. So he said, well, what's the point of this? People had been scattered since 722 B.C., they, I mean, the Jewish people had been, of course, they went to Assyria, Babylon, but did they all stay there? Of course not. They ended up going to every known part of the world. Now God is saying, listen, the three pilgrim feasts, no matter where you live, Jewish man, you better show up in Jerusalem. So now we've got a plethora of different individuals, men specifically, and, I'm, and ladies could come. They weren't forbidden. The ladies could come. The men could come. The children could come. And uh, here they are in Jerusalem. And they don't all speak Hebrew. In fact, how many actually spoke Hebrew? Not a whole lot. Uh, and it might be in the area of almost zero because their languages changed. There were uh, the Greek influence and so forth, the Roman influence. 
Everybody was speaking, not everybody, but of course different groups were speaking different languages. And now they're all coming together after the what? After the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ. Now here's where you need to put on your theological thinking caps. Up until this point, where was, if you will, the godly literature coming from? What group of books? The New Testament? No. Where was it all coming from? It's all coming from the Old Testament. What were the five main books that the Jewish people followed? And still to this day, they only, well, I won't say specifically, but most Jewish people today, the Orthodox Jews, they don't study all uh, uh, 30, 39 books of the Old Testament, even though they don't have, they don't call it 39 because they use the Tanakh, which condenses a few books into under one name. But they followed what? The Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And of course, what they mainly followed was the, uh, uh, the extra-biblical literature to try and add things to the law and, uh, and uh, those issues. But here's where we're getting to. They're living under the law. They're living under the Old Testament regime, and now something is changing. So here's the simplicity of it. Do you live under the law? No, I mean, Galatians, the whole book was written. Why? You're not under law, but under what? Grace. Grace. We don't follow the law here. Now, there's, uh, uh, and again, uh, the Orthodox Jewish people, and there's even some we'll call Messianic Christians that attempt to follow the law, but how many people can follow the 613 commandments of the Old Testament? Nobody, and God made that very clear. The law was our tutor. It was our schoolmaster to point out that what? That we were incapable of following it. So now we've got this whole massive group of Jewish people. They've lived under the law, and all of a sudden this individual called Jesus shows up, and they aren't getting it. They didn't realize Isaiah 53 prophesied about a suffering Savior who would come to die for them. They didn't get it. They don't understand in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, the 70-week prophecy, that after those first 69 weeks or 483 years, that Jesus would come and die. They didn't get that at that point. So they're indoctrinated with Jewish law, with Jewish uh, way of doing business, and now Jesus comes, and, and with all due respect, I don't mean this derogatorily, but Jesus messes up everything. It's a whole new system, a whole new way of doing things. And now something has to happen to get their attention. Is this for real? Is Jesus who he says he is? Are the apostles who they say they are? The disciples who they say they are? And now we've got to authenticate them. So it's like if, uh, um, and we're going through the political process now, if you uh, watch any mainline uh, television, uh, what do you see more than the, whatever program you're trying to watch? I mean, it's ad after ad, commercial after commercial, 90% of it is uh, false, whatever. Uh, you got to weed through all the mess, but that's another story. The issue is this. The indoctrination was there, and now all of that, which has been drilled into their heads, has to now turn from what they were studying, living to something different. Let me ask you this question, and this kind of puts it in perspective. And again, and, and we've shown pictures, we've been to, we've shown you pictures of Israel, I've shown you pictures of some of my Hasidic Orthodox friends 
that live up in uh, the Milwaukee land area, do they dress the way you dress? Why? Why do they turn their phones off on the Sabbath and won't answer them? Why do they practice washings that we don't do? Why do they do many different things that as a Christian community we no longer do? Do they do things differently? Now, of course, they're not following old 600 laws, but are they doing things differently than the Christian does today? And I'm talking about Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. They cannot, first of all, follow everything, but do they try? Absolutely they do. And they're trying, in, in their minds, they're trying to do the best thing they can to keep right with God because they don't know Jesus. So if you say, well, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Get in my car, I'll take you up to Sherman Park, and we'll go to a Jewish neighborhood, and I'll introduce you to some folks, and they'll be happy to tell you why they aren't like us. And they don't want to be like us at this point. All right? So it's, it, it makes it culturally, even in 2022, they do things differently than this group does because they're trying to fulfill the law, which, of course, they'll never do, but they're going to try. All right? It just points out the difference. All right. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay? We've described that, and we've described why the Jews that were dispersed, they learn new languages. They no longer use the common language in Israel, which, by the way, was Greek, not Hebrew, and uh, because they'd been Hellenized. In verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were what? Confused. What's going on here? Why were they confused, though? And it's not for the reason that we would think of in our normal environment today if okay and again i'm doing this very judiciously and with all respect by the way folks i was saved in a charismatic group so i i love the folks they have uh, a wonderful love for god of course we won't agree on some of the things we're going to talk about today but in in our vernacular in 20 in 2022 when you read this it's like well, I know why they were confused if you don't go to the next line. Because all of a sudden, these guys over here started to talk in some unknown language, and nobody had a clue what they were talking about. That would be, most, that would be our modern-day interpretation if we don't read on. Let's read on. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Why? Because everyone heard them speak in what? His own language. It wasn't some gibberish. It wasn't some unknown tongue. It wasn't some uh, speaking some other language. They're like, wait a second. What did you just say? I mean, I, just, I was just over here. I just talked with you or attempted to talk with you, and we had to communicate with th like this because they didn't have a clue what they were saying. Now, all of a sudden, they come up to them, and, and the guy's saying, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, hey, how are you doing? Wait a minute. How did you do that? When did you go to language school in the last 30 seconds? All right, so get the context. The context is, in this environment, what was taking place. What work did God have to do at this point? He's got to teach these Jewish people from all over the known world that Jesus Christ, the Savior, is coming to the world to save them. 
They didn't get that before. The disciples didn't get it until after the resurrection. They were, I mean, they heard it. They were taught it. It didn't make sense. At the resurrection, where were the disciples? Three days later, they weren't hanging out at the tomb waiting for him to jump up. They weren't because they didn't believe it yet. How about good old Doubting Thomas? I mean, after the resurrection happened, he was taught about the resurrection. Was he there saying, oh, yeah, he told us? He's like, I'm not going to believe it until what? I, yeah, when he shows up and I can put my fingers in his wounds, then I'll believe it. By the way, did he believe when that happened? Absolutely he did. Uh, uh, but they just didn't get it. Well, here we have this miraculous gift that's now taking place, this miraculous sign that's taking place because God has to do what? He has to authenticate his message. Verse 7. Then they were all what? Amazed. They marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? These are uneducated Galileans. These are simple disciples. Uh, they, they come from uh, Galilee, if you remember the three regions. What's, let's do that. We haven't done it in a while. What's the northern region of Israel? Galilee. What's the middle region? Samaria. What's the southern region? Judea. All right? So now we have, uh, they're like, listen, these simple fishermen, these folks from up north. Oh, boy, that's not going to go over well in Wisconsin. But uh, these folks from up north. These are uneducated people. They're simple people. They're fishermen. They do it up. How in the world is it that these folks are speaking my language all of a sudden? And uh, it's a miraculous thing. Verse 8. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Now, folks, does it get any clearer? How come they hear them in their known tongue. In other words, if we had Spanish visitors that couldn't speak English, folks from anyone who's Spanish-speaking, which of course could be a myriad of different places, and they come to Union Grove Baptist Church and sit down, and they hear me speak in English, and it's like, no, no hablo inglés, uh, don't get it, brother, <laughs> right? And we got some folks from uh, China, we had a Chinese foreign exchange student, Yen, uh, stayed with us for some four years while she went through high school. And uh, when she got to our home, I mean, her English was atrocious. She was a brilliant individual, could do math like nobody's business, but she couldn't read to save her life. You listen to her, and it's like, Yen, slow down one word at a time here, because, I mean, she could somehow understand us, but, man, I could not understand her. It took me a long time. Imagine Yen shows up, she can only speak Chinese. And there we have uh, folks from Japan. It's the only language they know. You have folks from uh, different countries all over the world today, and they only know that language. And all of a sudden, they show up at Union Grove Baptist Language School. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I begin to speak, and uh, every single one says, oh, yeah, I, I fully understand what he's saying. That's exactly what was taking place here. Every single person understood, I didn't write it, folks, God did, in their language what was being taught. Why? Because they needed to understand that things had changed since the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The Holy Spirit descends. He fills
fills these people with the Holy Spirit, allowing this miraculous sign to take place. Now, does that make sense? It, it truly does. I mean, there, at this point, there should be, I, I think we should all be on the same page. What, when we're going to get into the controversy is after we get out of this section, and specifically when you get into 1 Corinthians, that's where it really begins to uh, cause issues. And we're not going to go there tonight because I want you to show up next week and not cause a church split at this point. So, so uh, hopefully we can agree on what we're going through this evening. All right, verse 8. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So they're literally hearing the message that uh, God had for them. Now he's going to go through some of the places these people lived at that had different languages. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and what? All right, time for a doctrinal lesson again. Hopefully we can all agree at this point that all these people from all these different places that had different languages were gathered together because it was the feast of what? Pentecost. We should all get that one. <laughs> the Feast of Pentecost, which was a pilgrim feast where the Jewish men, were they required to be there? Absolutely. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles. Here they are, just like they're supposed to be. Now he said, and now we're going to throw a new word in here, one which we've used in the past, but it's very, very, very important here. There were Jews and what? What's a proselyte? One who's converted from... Not necessarily converted from, but converted to Judaism. So we're talking about, is a proselyte a Jewish person? No. It's a Gentile person that basically is subscribed to what? Subscribed to Judaism. Uh, the best example of that comes from the guy called the Ethiopian eunuch when Philip comes down and has a chat with him. Now, I don't want to get confusing, but I'm going to point out something that many of you probably already know. In Ethiopia today, there is a group of individuals that believe they have a Jewish ethnicity. All right? So if, uh, if you go to Jerusalem specifically and you'll find you'll, there's large numbers of Ethiopian Jews who are not, look, they do not look like Hebrew, they look like they're from Ethiopia. So they're, they're, they're uh, if you looked at the, this group, they look what they are. They're African American looking, dark skin. They do not look like a Jewish individual, but, and it gets into a long story, but I want to bring that point up because we're talking about the Ethiopian eunuch right now who I don't think had any issue about being what we now would call a Jew from Ethiopia, which is suspect in my terms, but we'll leave it at that. The bottom line is we have Jewish people that ended up in Ethiopia, or, uh, Gentiles from Ethiopia. This Ethiopian eunuch was a Gentile. You say, how do you know that? Because he comes up, to Jerusalem during a feast time, and what scroll does he pick up? He picks up Isaiah. 
He came there to worship God. Why would a Gentile guy from Ethiopia come up to worship God? Because he is a what? He's a proselyte. He proselytized. He, he believed in the, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and embraced it. So he comes up, follows the Jewish law. He's there at a feast, and now he's headed back to Ethiopia. And God says, hey, Philip, I want you to go down and talk to this guy. Philip says, all right, Lord, here I go. He, he runs down to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he begins to do what? Hey, uh, uh, hey, brother, uh, do, you, uh, do you understand what you're reading? Now, this guy had money. You don't get carted around in a chariot. You don't pick up scrolls in, in Israel if you don't have some serious money. So he's got the money. He's, he's reading this, and he's like, oh, yeah. He says, uh, uh, I'm, I'm reading this thing, and I, I don't have a clue what it's, what it's talking about. So uh, uh, Philip preaches out Isaiah 53, tells him who it's talking about, the Messiah. And all of a sudden, he says, well, I want to be baptized then. I said, what do you mean you want to be baptized? And he says, yeah, I want to be baptized. He says, well, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus is basically Christ the Lord? And he says, I do. He says, well, let's get down and get baptized. All right? So you have a Gentile who proselytized to Judaism who now proselytizes to Christianity. All right? So it's all three in one little package. The point that I'm trying to make is we're talking about Jews and Gentile proselytes. You say, well, why is that? Why is that important? Because, and this is where the difficulty and where people really, because we have these preconceived ideas about everything with the church age and what happened, here's what's really taking place. Does it say Jews and Gentiles? It doesn't say that. And you're not going to see a Gentile come to Christ until we get past Acts chapter 9. That is extremely important because we're going to watch a transition that's going to take place. The only people that are receiving the gospel at this point, from a biblical standpoint, and you read, and, and I've, I've challenged people all the time, read Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 9 and tell me one time where it talks about a Gentile coming to Christ. You're not going to find it. It doesn't exist. Why? Because... And if you look at the top of your sheet, I don't have the slide up there, and we're going to run out of time, but look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the progression of the gospel. So, and this comes right from the lips of Christ. But you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. All right, Acts chapter 2, we've seen that happen. And you shall be my witnesses to me where? In where? It's right there on the page. In where? Is that what's taking place in Acts chapter 2 as we start out? Are they in Jerusalem? Absolutely they are. Okay, so they're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and then where? In all Judea. Now, Judea is what? It's the southern region of Israel, of which Jerusalem happens to be one of the cities in Judean area. After they hit Judea, then where are they supposed to go? To what? Samaria. We talked about this probably a month ago. Samaria, was that a godly, wonderful place to live? Did the Jews want to spend any time in Samaria? Why? Because Jews and Gentiles intermingled and they were considered anathema by Jewish law. You don't marry a Gentile dog. So Samaria was looked down upon. By the way, did Jesus ever go to Samaria? Absolutely did. How about the woman at the well? 
Did he go to see her? Absolutely did. So the Samaritan, even though they were looked down upon at that time, Jesus kind of made things change. All right, so, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and then where to? The uttermost part of the earth. So we're going to watch this progression as we go through. And again, on the chart, if you look at that, you study it, you will find that's exactly how the gospel's going to go forth. All right, verse 10. So we have Jews and proselytes who are at the feast, which makes perfect sense. Why? Because the proselytes were Gentiles who embraced Judaism, and they wanted to be there at the feast because they wanted to please God. Makes perfect sense. Verse 11. Goes on for some more. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in what? Our what? Our own tongues. The wonderful works of God. All right, so he's telling us exactly what's taking place. The miraculous signs are taking place. People are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're hearing from, well, they're not hearing, they're speaking. And the massive amount of people gathered at the Feast of Pentecost, wow, we understand what they're saying. They're speaking in our tongue, not some, and excuse me, not some unknown tongue that nobody possibly could understand, literal languages that everyone understood from where they were from. All right? Hopefully we're still on the same page. Let's go to verse 12. So, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? <laughs> I mean, it was like, wow! Now, now folks, just imagine it if, if it was you in this environment. It's like, you know how when somebody has a, let's just use something simple that we can all relate to. So somebody's got a tumor, right? Somebody's got a bad tumor. It's on, it's on the, uh, the, the CAT scan, the PET scan, the MRI. And it's like, would you please pray, right? I mean, anytime somebody gets a tumor, what do we do? It's like, man, uh, uh, it's bad. It, it, I don't want to, it, it could be cancerous. It, it, we don't know. And, and they say, listen, would you pray for me? I, I, I've got this tumor. And uh, we say, all right, we'll pray for you. And uh, uh, you pray for them. And uh, they're like, man, here it is. And they got the x-ray. Let me just go personal for a minute. I'll give a personal one. That way I'll get your attention, right? Trevor, my son whom all of you know, he comes here with his wife. Trevor, before he was born, I'm sitting in the hospital or in the uh, uh, room where they're doing the, uh, what do you call that? Ultrasound. Say what? Ultrasound. ultrasound, right? They're doing the ultrasound and Valerie's on the table and, you know, they got that slop on it and putting that little picture camera all over and there's my son's head. And... Uh, and I'm not trying to be funny. This is dead serious at the, at the time. Now I make jokes out of it, but it wasn't so funny at the time. They said, this, your, your son literally does not have a brain. And I'm like, what? So he said, well, take a look at this. And they, they went up there and they started to go through his head and, and uh, what should have been there, whatever the coloring was, was non-existent. There were a bunch of white spots with heaven knows what they were saying that was. And they're like, your son, is, he's not going to, he's not going to live. He can't live. There's no way he can be born and live. So we suggest, and of course, here's what uh, 
the wonderful medical community will suggest unless you're fortunate enough to get a Christian doctor, you need to abort this baby immediately because it's going to be, he will be a burden on society if he manages to survive. And uh, you need to abort him, get rid of it. Uh, it, it, you gotta, it. You can't have him. So my wife and I are, of course, Believe it or not, we're Christians, and uh, we kind of hold to this thing that uh, God knows who his children are, and it's like, no, we don't kill children. So we'll just let the Lord do what he chooses to do. Now, again, if you've gone through an abortion and you've gone through that process, I'm not here to demean what you chose to do. I would disagree with it, but um, please don't be upset because of that issue. I love you regardless, okay? Make that very plain. The bottom line is... Valerie and I said, nope, we're out of here. Uh, I went, we went back one more time. They said, yeah, it's, I mean, same, same issue. Your son is literally not going to have a brain. He's going to be born. He may live. Uh, uh, there's some signs of something there, but forget it. He's, you got you to abort. Bottom line is we didn't abort. I spent the next multiple months, every minute of every day that I wasn't working or doing something, literally praying for my son. And, I, and I'm not kidding. I never prayed so much in all my life. Needless to say, because you've all seen Trevor, he does, I think, has a brain. <laughs> That's the joke. He's got a brain. He's a straight-A student. He's an athlete. And you say, well, you know, the doctors just messed it up. No, I think God fixed it up. And uh, you have your own stories like, well, this person was, uh, had a tumor and all of a sudden it disappears. This person had this issue and all of a sudden it's, it's gone and everything's right. Can God heal people today? Absolutely can. All right? So here, you, you, and we all jump up and down and get excited like, woo, I can't believe it. They're, they're healed. The, the, the sickness is gone. The pain is gone. The problem's gone. And now all of a sudden these people are going through the same thing, but they're living it in living color. And all of a sudden this person's speaking who couldn't speak their language, but they're hearing it in their own language. Do you think that would get a crowd excited? Well, yeah, to get it excited. And that's exactly what happened. Whatever could this mean? Verse 13, others mocking said they're full of new wine. Now, here's where it gets kind of weird. It's like, Okay, so these people say they're hearing it. These people say they're hearing it. And this guy over here says, baloney, you aren't hearing anything. You're making it up. That's really what's going on. So he says, nope, they're just drunk. Well, here's Peter's rebuttal, good old Peter. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Basically saying, listen, it's way too early. Nobody's drunk. They haven't even had time to drink. It's not like in Milwaukee where they go out and drink all day and all night and are drunk all day and all night. Culturally, you didn't get drunk at that time. That's literally what they're saying. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, here we go. Shut this down because battery's out. Now it gets real interesting. This is what was spoken by the prophet who? Joel. What? Wait a second. What's taking place here? Who is Joel prophesying to? 
And you all just got through, the, those of you that were with us, the Minor Prophets course. Now, I want to take you back because this is where we're going to run into some real serious issues doctrinally in trying to figure this out. I've made the statement, and I do stand by it, that the Old Testament never, ever, ever once prophesied about the church age. And I stand by that. And now we have Joel make it a prophecy about something that's taking place in Acts chapter 2 after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. What in the world is going on? And how are we going to doctrinally support what we're about to say? And by the way, there is support. But here's the preconceived notions that many of us have to work through when we're dealing with this passage. What is literally taking place here that Joel was talking about? What is, if you remember, what is the main theme of the book of Joel? It's talking about the day of what? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord Lord is not a church age topic. And you're like, well, wait a second. Didn't the church start right here? Well, we're going to go through that. What is taking place here? The key term that we've got to understand because we've just had the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is we're going to go through a transitional time. Forget the church age now, which is very hard for us to do. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, God's prophetic timeline. Church age is never discussed in it. And as you well, most of you know, except if you're new here, I wrote a literal theological book, one of my doctrinal theses, on the church age exists between Daniel 9.26 and 9.27. That's where the church age fits today, between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Now the issue is, what's taking place in Acts? Go back to Daniel 9.26 to 20. I'm not turning to it. I mean, we're just going to have to talk through it. We'll go through it in literal later. In Daniel chapter 9, what is taking place? We have... Daniel 9.26 talks about the death of the Messiah who will be cut off for the people. The next thing on God's prophetic timeline in Daniel 9.26 is the destruction of the temple, which would take place in AD 70, 570 years plus after it was prophesied. That's all that's in Daniel 9.26. The next verse, Daniel 9.27, starts with the peace treaty being confirmed with who? The Antichrist. You say, well, where did the church age go? It's not in there. Again, it's between Daniel 9, 26 and 27. So it's like, what were the Jewish people waiting for after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Well, the next thing they expected to take place was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Did that happen? Well, they didn't know it was going to be 70 AD, but did the second temple get destroyed? Was prophecy fulfilled? Absolutely it was. What's the next major thing they were looking for? A Jewish person reading Daniel. Let's see, the destruction of the temple. The next thing on God's prophetic timetable in Daniel 9.27 is the Antichrist. Nope, not in there. It's not in there. There's nothing about the rapture in the Old Testament. Not a thing. You know why? Because the church is a, and we've brought this up. Now, some of you right now are getting confused. 
So I want you to write down two passages. I want you to go home and study them because what I'm saying, or you can, and I'm not trying to sell my book, but you get the book and it goes through it in ad infinitum detail. Daniel's Gap, Paul's Mystery, What Paul's a Prophetic Calendar. I mean, I spend 300 pages going through this in ad infinitum. But here's the issue. The church age was a, what's the word? Starts with an M. Mystery. Mystery. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Ephesians 3, verses 1, or Ephesians 3, verses, uh, let's see, I messed up. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. There we go. My brain had to kick in. You go there and it talks about the mystery that God kept secret since basically the foundation of the world, but now it's been revealed to the apostles and prophets. That didn't take place at that time. So you say, well, why did God keep the church age a secret? Here's the technical answer. Are you ready? I don't know. I don't know. All right, but he chose to. He didn't reveal it until we get into the New Testament times. So here's the major issue. What is happening and why is Joel all of a sudden coming on the scene here? Because what was the next major event on God's prophetic timetable after, if you will, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ? Well, of course, the, we knew the second temple was going to be destroyed. But the next major thing was we're going to pop right into the day of the Lord. If the church age would not have started We'd already be in the millennium, folks, because the seven-year tribulation would have kicked in and the millennial kingdom would have kicked in. And that would have happened. We'd already be past that. A thousand and seven years. We're 2,000 years since that event took place. So, I mean, we're way past that. Why? Because God interrupted the prophetic calendar. So here's what's happening. And we're almost out of time. You come back next week. You think through this. Some of you are like, man, this is like, are you kidding me? I don't get this. It's hard. It's difficult. When you spend your time, and here's what you have to think about, and I'm just asking you to think through it. Why all of a sudden did the day of the Lord sign gifts or signs that Joel talked about in Joel 2? All right, here's what we're going to do in the last couple minutes. Go to the back part of your handout, and I put it down there for you. Acts chapter 2, verse 16 through 21. Skip verse 16, and you start at verse 17. All right, verse 16, what does he say? But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, if you compare Acts 2 with Joel 2, you're going to come out with, based on, you know, a little bit of Greek difference, a Hebrew di difference translated into English, it's basically word for word the exact same thing. Why is that? Because it's the exact same thing. But why? Why is this taking place? Because the next major event on the Old Testament Jewish prophetic calendar was the what? It's the tribulation. You say, why, why all of a sudden did this kick in? That's a great question, isn't it? Why all of a sudden is God starting to pop those events that were specific to the tribulation period after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, which was prophesied in Daniel 9.26, and all of a sudden we're clicking into the beginning of the next piece of God's prophetic calendar from the Old Testament. What I want us to see, and we're just going to read a couple of verses here. Go on the back page. I'm not sure where I got it on the slide, so I'm not going to go there. 
Uh, let's start at verse 17. Uh, if you go on the back page, you'll see it. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dreams. And on my maid servants and on my maid, or on my maid servants and on my maid I said it wrong. Men servants. There you go. Men servants and on my maid servants I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Pause. Gap. Stop. Verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Basically, we're talking about the second coming. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, folks, between verse 18 and 19, none of that happened. It didn't happen. And uh, you can read every major scholar on this passage, and they'll all say, God paused it. So why all of a sudden at the beginning did these sign gifts kick in? Because we're going to go through a major transition period until a certain group of individuals pass off the scene known as what group? Starts with an A. What group existed during Jesus' time that starts with an A? What group? The apostles. What we're going to see as we go through this that there are signs that were given to the apostles. When the last apostle passed off the scene, and this is where it's going to get controversial again, when the last apostle passed off the scene, the end of the apostolic gifts took place. So you're saying, well, Brother Rich, you believe that the apostolic gifts haven't existed since the end of the first century? That's exactly right. And you say, well, wait a minute. Don't people still get healed today? Not the way they got healed back in uh, apostolic times when Peter walks into a room and there's a dead girl on the table and he walks over and says, stand up, and she stands up. I, I haven't seen that take place since I've been born. Have you? Nope. Uh, let's see. We could go through, well, I get word of knowledge and I get prophecies. We'll discuss that, not tonight, but I want you to think through it. I hear people that speak in tongues all the time. Do you? How many times have they gone into a place where it is people of a diff that have a different language and they hear them speak in their own language? That was the literal gift of tongues, languages. There's a hyperbole section in 1 Corinthians that talks about, well, if I could speak in the tongue of angels, but I don't have love, I'd just be a... If, nobody can. Now, the charismatic and Pentecostal community will put me, on the, put me on a stake and burn me to death for just saying what I said. They don't believe that. They believe with all their heart that they can speak in the tongue of angels. That was hyperbole. It was a statement. If I could do this, then. Not true. All right? Now, there's some people that are going to have real issues with this. Again, and, and I'll, i got two minutes left. I was saved in a charismatic Bible study. I want to make that very clear. I was taught, though never accepted, I was taught. Wait a minute. Taught how to speak in tongues. Taught. 
a learned behavior. Did anyone ever understand anything anyone was ever saying? No. And you're like, again, this is where it's like, man, you know, you, you, you're going out on a limb. It's been, and I just, for the first time, I breached this a couple of weeks ago at this church. It is so controversial, it is so emotionally charged, that I very specifically have avoided this subject because it is very, very emotionally charged because when a person has an experience and all of a sudden they believe that they're doing something that is led by the Holy Spirit and now all of a sudden a pastor, a preacher comes along and says, maybe you want to rethink that. They don't want to rethink it. It becomes a very, very divisive issue. So, the reason I'm putting this out on the table is I will teach the whole counsel of God exactly as it's written in its right contextual approach. And I will not make my experience or anyone else's experience doctrine. It must be scriptural. As hard as it is in our environment, in our culture, to understand what truth is. So, I will ask for your indulgence if by chance and, and in I know I need to stop now, but I want to make this one last statement. If by chance you're one of those individuals, you go home and you go into your prayer closet, so to speak, and begin to speak in what you believe is the gift of tongues, I don't want you to get discouraged right now. I don't want, I want you to try not to get upset with me. I want you simply to think about it, be open to what the Scripture has, at least from our perspective, the Scripture has to say, and don't get disgruntled, don't get mad, don't get upset, but think through these things. That's the best I can ask you to do. All right, uh, we'll pray, we'll be dismissed, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again next week, and uh, we'll continue on this very, very important study. Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, these are passages that have caused so much division, so much confusion in our modern-day churches, not just here in America, but all over the country, all over the world. And Father, just help us, uh, Lord, not to be divisive about this, not to cause division, uh, but Lord, simply to study, to show ourselves approved unto you, unto God. Workmen and workwomen, that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing, rightly handling the word of truth. So Father, we pray you dismiss us with your blessing. Thank you for uh, the safety you've given to folks that are here and getting us here tonight. And pray you do the same as we traverse our ways home. Uh, we look forward to Sunday morning and what you'll do then. And we commit this all to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for being here, folks.